Coffee Hell podcast. Today, we're not in the US. David Pasanta and I, Armbit Bahia, are currently on our little European tour, so we find ourselves in London. And our guest today, actually, is a professor at University College London, and his name is Mark McDuffie. Hello, Mark. Cheers. Cheers, yes. Thank you for coming out to see us. What we usually do at the beginning of our recording is get our speaker to tell us a little bit about their background and they ended up where they are right now. How far back do we to go? Oh, um, let's just go to uh, PhD. <laughs> Sound the um, I did a PhD in material science, which is a subject that no one really seems to know what it is. Me included. There we are. <laughs> so it's basically the, the science of how materials work. and Everything is made of something. Look around you. You have metal, wood, glass, ceramic. Take all that stuff away, then we just end up sitting in a muddy field getting wet, especially in London. So, um, in some senses, it's not too big a kind of claim to say that without materials, we are not human. Clothes, cars, stuff makes us who we are. But there's a science behind it too, because it's not just cultural, social, and also things have strength, toughness, and electrical properties. And you need to know all that stuff. And that's what I did my first degree in in Oxford. And this came to in jet engine alloys because it turns out that jet engines are probably the most, well, not probably, they are, the most efficient engine on the planet. And that's why we can fly everywhere so cheaply. Um, but people are always trying to improve the efficiency, and that means, in my case, I was working on alloys which have to operate at above their melting point, which is not usually a tenable position for most metals to be in. But still, it's possible, and that's a marvelous, extraordinary thing. And in particular, it turns out that metals, when you heat them up, they have all sorts of inner dynamics and inner life. So that's what I was studying. And then I went to the States to work for Sandition at National Labs and a nuclear weapons lab, which was very interesting. And I got to know about all sorts of things about trying to keep satellites in the air and, and the interconnectedness of silicon chips and how materials, in fact, are the thing that often make them go wrong. And so longevity of satellites and, in fact, missions to Mars often hinge around materials problems. Like, you know, have a mission to Mars and get there and back. Most spaceships have three of the same thing. They have, let's say they have three clocks. Why do they have three? Because if they had two clocks and one of them went wrong, you wouldn't know which one to believe. There's so much on these space missions that's redundant to make them robust, but actually what you really want is self-healing stuff. You want, like us, you want things to heal themselves. So I work on self-healing And self-healing systems are obviously all around us. They're called humans and animals. And so I study them and the tissues and how those are able to self-heal. We know it's possible because we do it. And then what we want to do is make concrete, metal, plastic, and machines and phones self-heal. Wow. Okay. How do you bring together what humans do in their little systems and translate it to how you can get a material to heal? That sounds really bizarre. Yeah, so we sort of think of the way that tissues are built and humans and, and biological entities that's very different from things like metals and plastics. But actually, they're all made from atoms, and actually at other scales, at the nanoscale and the microscale, they're exactly the same. But not just that, it's the, it's the, it's the basic physics of interdynamics. So what humans are doing when they're healing themselves is creating a structure that's functional, like your skin, which creates a barrier, and then if that gets disrupted by a cut, it's actually trying to re- regain that barrier. So it's the same principle is that you have functional things in metal and ceramics and glass, and you, are, you need to find out what microstructural scale determines that property, and then you have to make that property regenerate itself. 
So okay. the principles are the same, and that's what it's all about. University, right? Basic yeah. research, studying the principles, and then making new technology. At least that's the ideal, right? <laughs> that's the ideal. Yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, that's all. It's all more exciting for that. I mean, working in a university research lab is like working in a monastic religious order. You know, you believe in it. Yeah, you carry on every day, even though every day is the same. And then, at some point, you have a breakthrough, and that's the moment where you think, "Wow, this does all work. It is brilliant." And that's only happened to me a couple of times. But well, why don't you give us an example of one such breakthrough? I'm intrigued now. Well, I mean, very early on in my career, uh, I was given a problem, which was that. Um, so air conditioning, as you know, comes from Florida, mm-hmm. is important, right? Yes. And it relies on pumping refrigerant through very small copper tubes. Mm-hmm. And the smaller the copper tube, the more surface area you have per, per volume of fluid. So you want that small. But also you want a large volume to get the heat away quickly. How do you do it? So actually, it turns out you groove the tubes. Take a part of the uh, air conditioner, snap it, open the tubes, you'll find a groove on the inside. Now, grooving the inside of the copper tubes it's hard to how do you do it. You actually use tungsten carbide uh, extruder inside and we were given the task of making that helical. You had to make it out of two bits of tungsten carbide which is a very hard ceramic and those bits would shear away under the pressures and no one could work out how to solve this problem so they gave it to me. Not because I'm brilliant at solving problems but because you give it to the sort of you know, cheap labour in the university post op. I'm looking for a job. Give it to him. No one else can solve it. And I... I actually asked around, did a lot of experiments, got nowhere, and in the end, did a big literature search, found nothing very much interesting, and then I phoned up someone in a national lab and said, look, I'm having a lot of trouble, I've got tons of carbide, it's a ceramic, but I have to bond it together, and I have no idea how to do this. Everyone else is bolting it together, and it's not working. And they're like, well, you just heat up from the back of the find that temperature, then the microstructure will automatically bond together. Because there's a trick that happens at that temperature. And I'm like, no. And he goes, yeah. I go, no. And he goes, yeah. We solved the problem really just like that. I mean, it was just a miracle. And I had to go to the factory, which is in Canada, by the way, mm-hmm. and present the solution to this. You know, the CEO was there, all the engineers were there, this enormous factory was there. They put the thing into the machine, and it worked. And it's still working. Has this had huge repercussions in the kind of. Air conditioning. Anyone listening to this podcast in an air-conditioned room in a hot country, just think of that moment. Okay? <laughs> you are benefiting from that yes. moment of genius. Well, not my genius, actually. I just, you know, I just asked the right person. And actually, that's what a lot of science is. Most people have invented or found out what you're looking for. Yep. You just need to find that information or put two bits of information together. Yep. And uh, although, you know, that's, that feels great. And it's worth it. Absolutely. Um, so do you have a pet project that you're working on now? Oh, yes. We are making a wearable exoskeleton. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And because it's almost possible now, and that's mm-hmm. a really exciting thing. So the idea is that instead of having an external exoskeleton like these ones you see with big motors around all the joints and, and enormous batteries in the back, what about having something you wear underneath your tire? It's like a wetsuit. It's like a thickness of a wetsuit, but it will be printed, 3D printed, Whichever joints you're having trouble with, we will be printing actuators, which are materials that will change shape when they're given an electric uh, signal. And we're making the printed material have a kind of meshing quality, so it locks up together mm-hmm. and will become stiff 
when it gets that signal and it will relax. So I don't know if you've seen 3D printing sort of fabric. You can make things that are very fabric-like but are made of non-liquid materials. And the trick for us is going to be printing the actuators along with the, the structural material and the, and the electronics. So every single link will be electronically addressed. So the first people to do it, will, you know, it'll, it'll take five years probably, but so it's, we're on our way, and that's exciting because the actuators are lagging behind, the electronics are lagging behind, the 3D printing is lagging behind, but they're all really accelerating fast. And um, you can imagine, really, that it, it doesn't have to... I mean, obviously, we'd like to get people out of wheelchairs mm-hmm. with this suit, but that's a long way off, probably. You can definitely imagine that we can, you know... But cast, you know, when you have an injury on a mm-hmm. wrist or something like that, you yeah. can imagine a, a stiff cup, which in the first few days where you're, you know, it will just be utterly stiff, it won't be done over at all. And then yeah. as you're trying to build up your muscle strength, it might allow you some flexibility, maybe a couple of hours a day. Yeah. But not just that, it'll be monitoring your flexibility, so you have sensors. So actually, clothing is going to get more integrated with electronics, but assistive clothing is going to be a big area. Both for people re- recovering from illness or injuries, yep. it's going to be massive in obviously in sports. Or Batman. Exactly. Super <laughs> superpowers. And that's what materials in the end deliver you. They deliver you superpowers. Why wouldn't you want those? Absolutely. Wow. I never knew any of this stuff about material science. That's the problem. Yes. That's why I wrote the book, Stuff Matters. Well, it basically <laughs> takes you on that journey from knowing nothing about the subject to suddenly thinking, huh? Why am I not doing this? Yes, please continue on the shameless plug. The shameless plug. I mean, so <laughs> the book is written as if, obviously, everybody knows about materials, but they haven't maybe thought that they have this interior line that um, they do. So like ceramics and metals and fabric and plastics all only had a history and have changed the world how we live, but they have really fascinating mechanisms inside them which, which, which have had historical discoveries and the science itself is maps together with physics and chemistry and biology. So, so each chapter is a different material mm-hmm. and we just basically have a different approach and each, each material is different in your life. You think about how you feel about wood versus how you feel about glass, whereas how, how you feel about, let's say, aluminium. You might actually be someone who makes things, fabricates things. So you might know a lot about steel, for instance, but know nothing about glass. Mm-hmm. And so I try to tailor the book to people who know nothing at all about any of these materials, but know, you know, that they're all around them and that they would like to know more. Um, uh, and I, I obviously I, I, I look to the future too. So you know, there's some new materials coming like graphene. It's a rollicking read. Even the, <laughs> even the Wall Street Journal agrees. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Super exciting stuff. And actually, this has a very beautiful cover, which reminds me of the um, Institute of Making that we've just walked past, and sadly it's not open today. But please tell us more about that. One of the things I realised when I started um, doing research into materials was that in the sciences, they'll take the technical qualities into it, like strength and electrical properties, and they'll, they'll kind of really hone those. And they completely ignore the sensuous properties, like... The, the touch, the smell, the taste. But they know nothing about the technical side. So I realised that what we needed was an institute that brought those two communities together because there's a lot to be gained, in my view, between designing not just technically amazing materials, but technically amazing materials that we care about and that we love. And then you need those other attributes. And the, and the history of materials tells you that too, right? So how do you do that? So start collecting materials because actually materials themselves or a language that people understand. And if you put um, material in someone's hand, 
they, they will respond to it, actually. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are very tactile creatures. And so now we have thousands of materials in the library. We went to one stage further and said, well, actually, those communities need to build prototypes together. So we need all the machines so they can do that, so they can take these materials and they can build them together. So we call, we call it an institute of making. It's got digital fabrication techniques like 3D printers and digital uh, laser cutters. But it's also got traditional ones like ceramics, like kilns and wood cutting. And, and we've been around for a year in our fully fledged form. And already we've, yeah, we've done a lot. Some great things have happened. Do you have strange things being donated to you once people hear about it? Yes, we do. Um, we had an open day on Saturday, in fact, and we had 800 members of the public. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. People love stuff. People yeah. love stuff. They love stuff. <laughs> they love stuff. Yes. But they know nothing about it. Yeah. That's why they need to read the book and stuff like that. But they also come on to the, um, to the open day, because actually the language of materials, because we, we always allow people to make materials and use materials at our open days, it's not a passive thing. They're not receiving information. They're doing. And I think that's really important, that people get to do stuff. Because when you do stuff, you start to understand the material. In fact, which frustrates me that material science and engineering degrees are too theoretical. People mm-hmm. feel like if you know the theory of plasticity, then you know what metals are like. You don't. You know a tiny bit about what metals are like. You go and try and make something now, yes. and you'll realise that, that actually the theory of plasticity tells you a small part of how metals behave. The theory of uh, quantum mechanics tells you a lot about why some things are transparent and things are not. But it doesn't allow you to make glaze that really you know, produces an emotional effect on someone. And yet, the opportunity for really putting those two bits of knowledge together mm-hmm. are there. So I would love it if objects start to come out of the Institute rather than research papers. And those objects live in the world and are marvellous. That's, that's my big aim with the Institute. Yeah. I certainly think for the, the public it makes a lot more sense to be able to see, oh, okay, yeah, this is the product of science yeah. as opposed to a paper. And not just science, but science and art and culture are actually a joint enterprise. Of course. And on that subject, actually, Mark is also uh, a fellow advocate for science and arts and helping uh, the public understand those things. And he's involved in the Cheltenham Science Festival. So can you tell us more about that too? Uh, yeah, well, it's been going for about 13 years. I've been with it for 11. This is what I thought science was going to be like. Instead of the turgid conferences that I have to go to, <laughs> where people turn up and give really terrible talks about their mediocre work and have no ability to tell you why they devoted their life to it. And you sit through, talk after talk after talk, and think, why am I here? And occasionally there's a great talk, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's so rare. And then you go to Children's Science Festival and the other science festivals that are growing around the world, and you realize, and there are talented people who are leaders in their field, but not just that, but they can <laughs> tell you what they're doing, and you understand why you're doing science. And I think... I go there every year, I give talks, but I also help organise it. It just re-energises me. I know why I'm doing it again. Mm-hmm. And you meet the public, and the public, they ask really interesting questions. They ask questions that you sh- we should all be asking ourselves, but we don't because we're sort of too into the details. Yeah. And that's really important. I think it's pushing science forward. Um, so it's not just a one-way... It's not just us telling the public what we do. It's the public saying, should you be doing that? Yes. (laughs) Have you really thought about this? But also, why don't you do it this way? And why do you spend all your time trying to do that? Fusion, for instance. When, in fact, if you just put all that resource into solar power, we could just crack this in about 10 years. That's a bit odd. Why are you doing that? And we go, well, it's ego. It's ego. We want to create a fusion reactor, and that sounds really great, whereas creating solar panels doesn't sound so great. That's my view, of course, Mm -hmm. of why people work on fusion. When, in fact, they should be working on solar power. Very good. 
So normally we'd have some questions from the general public. Today we have a very small audience of David Basanta and one of our friends, Edward Black. So I'm going to leave the mic open to them to ask some questions. I'd like to know uh, what we can expect to see in the next few years. From materials. Well, I think 3D printing is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's difficult to imagine quite where it's going to make enormous breakthroughs. One of the things I think is almost certainly going to happen is that open source printing of um, parts of things you can't repair any other way is going to start to become large. So the big big community of people who are going to digitally scan parts of things and allow you to 3D print them anywhere in the world and repair them is, is going to be possible. And that's going to change, I hope, the way that manufacturers approach making their machines and making them more repairable. Um, but then also 3D printing, the sweet spot for 3D printing is that you can take a digital file and it can be completely tailored to you. So where the big growth area is going to be in hospitals where already people are printing functional implants for people based on exactly the shape of their, for instance, at UCL last year, a patient who had throat cancer you know, had, a, had a, a new throat essentially printed and implanted. And the great thing about that technology is that we're all different shapes, right? You just take an MRI scan of the patient, you, you digitally make the part, you print it out, you put it in a bioreactor with their own, with their own cells, and you put it back into their body, and that's going to be huge. What about more day-to-day? Could we print our own clothes? People are already printing clothes and shoes, and the great thing is, I mean, so I'd love to see the day where, where you go into a shoe shop and it's just a printer in the corner, and you just pick your style, and you have your 3D scan of your foot, and because no two feet are the same size anyway. The idea that you should go and you know, I think we are absolutely failure. We, in ten years' time, we're, we're all saying, "What's your shoe size?" That's a, that will be a failure on behalf of your scientists. No one should ever have to know their shoe size. You're, you haven't got a shoe size. You've got two different shapes and sizes, size feet, and you yes. should be given shoes that fit both of them. There we are. That's, that's what your scientists should be doing. Sounds like you should have a placard. Down <laughs> <laughs> the shoe size. It's a tyranny. But then, of course, you might say, well, clothes sizes too, right? So, in fact, the whole thing about 3D scanning has become a very cheap technology now. And then turning them into objects and clothes and shoes. And jewellery is very, very big now already. I mean, 3D printing of jewellery has been going for a long time. That's 15 years. Um, and I imagine that's going to get bigger too. Self-repair. Self-healing concrete works by... Mesh of inorganic and organic. So there are these bacteria that will lie dormant for 50 years inside concrete. And if a crack opens up in a bridge, they are exposed to humid air. Maybe in Florida, it's more humid air than the summer than in the winter, I don't know. Unfortunately, I've heard that's true. But um, so they, they wake up on this cube and they look around for food that like we all do in the morning. And, and the concrete manufacturers have put starch into the concrete mix, so they eat that, yum yum yum, and then they poo, like we all do in the morning, anyway, they poo calcite, which is a mineral, which is one of the major constituents of concrete. They eat their way out of the and they leave a pristine material behind them. It's amazing. And it works. It restores 90% of the strength of concrete. Wow. So do we know where this is being used currently? It's been prototyped in Holland. In the Netherlands, okay. um, it's available anywhere. I think now. So the question is this, and I think it'll be a question to all people who are developing infrastructures: Do you want to pay for a bridge that will last and heal itself for, let's say, 150 years, or do you want to pay for one that will last 30 years? 
she describes humans as uh, and, and animals as, as uh, capable of self-repair, but we are not capable of all kinds of self-repair. There's obviously very clear constraints and very severe limits of how much we can self-repair. Yeah. Um, I do imagine that that basically implies that in terms of materials, there's going to be a limit of what the things we want spend any energy or time doing self-repair. What, what are the main uses? can't see us not creating an urban environment that looks after itself. I can't. I think we'll do that. It's, I don't think it's beyond us at all. It's definitely possible. So the thing about repair is that that means that someone has to do it. Mm-hmm. And that means there's a whole set of jobs around it. How far can it go? Um, I don't know, really. I think no one knows. And that's exciting, I suppose. Um, I mean, obviously, some mammals can actually grow a new tail. We can't yes. do that. And you'll find, so why don't we just do the genetics and, you know, allow us to work out how to grow a new arm? I guess there will be people doing that. It's not my area, but, you know, there might be some competition with those people. I think there are a lot of people working on ageing that are right. attempted to do right. exactly yeah. that. So potentially we could disappear from this planet and uh, the whole infrastructure will keep taking care of themselves. So aliens will come thousands of years from that point and they still find a perfectly functioning London. I love that idea. I love it. I love it. There might be an abandoned city somewhere which has got working traffic lights. This is the first sci-fi novel if ever I heard one. Isn't there a Douglas Adams story where there's a spaceship that gets stuck looking for paper napkins and to to go to the... and it won't leave the spaceport until it gets it and it puts everyone in the hibernation until the paper napkins go. But but in the meantime, civilization collapses. So it's, it's waiting infinitely for paper napkins to be delivered <laughs> from a civilization that has long since collapsed. And I always thought that was a good story. Well, today's podcast has been recorded in uh, the Jeremy Bentham, which if anyone knows anything about University College London, they'll realise it's a very appropriate place for us to be. Um, thank you for letting us be here. And thank you so much, Mark, for talking to us today. It's been very entertaining. And of course, not to forget... Mark Medovnik's book, Stuff Matters, is available for everyone to buy now. to a public rally outside the parliament because the science funding was being cut. You can be a public speaker and I do a lot of lectures and, and that's a totally different skill than talking to a big public crowd. The big public crowd, there's not a lot of content. It's usually actually just, you have to have a slogan and a few words of this and there's a lot of people out there and they've been there for hours and you have to kind of get the energy going. It's a totally different skill. And I, it turns out, don't have that skill. But I knew that I had to have some sort of slogan, something for the crowd to do. And I decided to get them to play the materials game that's a classic which is rock, paper, scissors yep. and I said I didn't really have it clear in my head but I knew that scissors that's cuts we didn't want cuts yep. I said you know, we don't play rock, paper, scissors we don't want cuts and I got everyone to do the scissors sign right <laughs> and, uh, and then I said I said we need to smash those people who are going to do the cuts and I did the, the stone sign right and I yeah. said and let's get rid of all the paperwork. I did the paper sign, yep. but I held the paper out in front of me, like that. And that, by this point, everyone was mirroring my actions. So there's a picture of me doing a Hitler salute in front of a crowd of people, all doing the Hitler salute back at me. You can look it up online. It is the most embarrassing photo.
been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.